Our text today is Exodus 31, verses 1 to 18. Exodus 31, 1 to 18. Why don't you follow along as I read either in your copy of God's Word or on the screen. This is the Word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishmach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, and the, burnt, the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments, for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for a word from you in the Bible, for the Lord's Day that reminds us of what is truly important in life, and for the opportunity to be able to be together as the body of Christ, to be able to reflect on this text and its application in our lives. Lord, we live in the midst of a culture that is so busy and so active and it doesn't seem like it's going to slow down anytime soon. And we pray that you would help us to know how to work really hard and how to rest really well. So give us grace. There's a lot to think about today. Help me to make this clear. And thank you just for the beauty of what it's been to study your word this week and to have what I feel is a important word from you about something that is just so relevant to all of us. So would you come now and help me and speak to our people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that many of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Beyond, you know, the, um, the memorable soundtrack. 
Remember that? Is that close? Pretty close? Beyond, beyond the memorable soundtrack is a pretty incredible storyline of a runner named Eric Little who worked really hard, perfected his skill, and got all the way to the Olympics, probably going to win a gold medal, only to choose to not run in the race simply because that race was to be held on a Sunday. Eric Little famously said to his sister when she was uh, kind of berating him a little bit about his passion for running, he said that, look, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. There was something about his running that he felt that when I run, it's as though this is what God has made me for. Tim Keller, in a new book called Every Good Endeavor, makes a very insightful contrast about the motivation of little in his running and the motivation of all the other runners. Here's what Keller says. One man ran in the Olympics literally to justify my existence, while another man, little, had such deep rest in Christ that he could miss a likely gold medal by not running on Sunday. The first man had to get a medal. The second man, the devoted Christian, Eric Little, did not care in the same way whether he won Olympic medals or not. He was at rest. Eric Little was a man who found the beautiful balance of divinely given talent and work and the command and the empowerment to rest. And today what I want to do is dial into those two themes that are somewhat in tension, but are really important, work and rest. And, and the reason why it's important for us to talk about this is because every single one of us, regardless of our age, our experience, what your job, what your career is, all of us work and all of us have to rest. The problem is in regards to how we work or how we rest. And even below that problem is another problem or another question in regards to why we would work or why we would rest. In the middle of our study here in Exodus, we come to this text in, in Exodus 31 that really concludes the section on the tabernacle. We've looked at unbelievable detail in terms of the design of this facility. And now at the end, after all of these instructions regarding the colors and the fabrics and the design and the dimensions... Now we come to this section where God gives instructions regarding two particular people who will be filled with the Spirit in order to do the work. And then at the end of the text is a command to rest. And what we see here is a biblical vision of both work and rest. And so today I want to show you first the pleasure of work and then secondly, the faith that it takes to rest. And then third, help you to see how the gospel is in the center of all of this and how it makes a world of difference in terms of how you view your work and how you view rest. So first here, the pleasure of work. Exodus 31 shifts the focus from all of the details of the tabernacle to the actual people who will construct the tabernacle. Their names are listed for us. In chapter 31, their names are Bezalel and Aholiab. They're more than just craftsmen. 
They're more than artists. These are men who are gifted by God, specifically empowered, for the building of a worship center for the people of Israel. And the fact that these men are selected and what is said about them is really important. I want you to notice a few things about them. First, in verse 2, notice that these men are called. It says, see, I have called by name. Verse 6 says it a little different way, a little differently, a different way. And behold, I have appointed with him a holy ab. There's a very clear sense here that God had a very particular calling for these men. They're not just craftsmen. They're not just artists. They're divinely appointed artists. They're divinely appointed craftsmen. And we're going to come back to this theme in a moment, but I just want to start from the very beginning here and help you understand that they have a calling. God has called them in the same way that you have a calling on your life. Every single one of us have a calling. The question is, what is that calling? Verse 3. Here's the second thing. As we notice that they are filled with the Spirit of God. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Verse 6 says the same thing, but in a different way. The latter part, and I have, latter part of verse 6, and I have given to all able men ability. So the idea is that by virtue of the Holy Spirit, both Bezalel and Aholiab have talents and abilities that God, by the Holy Spirit, has given to them. Now this is really interesting, especially if it's correct, as some Old Testament scholars believe, that what's happening in the text here with the tabernacle is a recreation, if you will, of the creation moment. That in the creation moment, God speaks and the universe is created. And now in the tabernacle, there's seven different ways in which God speaks and this tabernacle is being created as a place of order, a place of peace in the midst of a world that's broken. In the same way that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of the earth in creation, so now the Holy Spirit is engaged in the construction of the tabernacle, but not just in terms of the details, Notice that the Holy Spirit is involved in the empowerment and the enablement of these workers. They're called, they're empowered. Third, notice that they express their divine calling and their enablement through very tangible skills, through very specific abilities. Verses 3 to 5 list the following sort of expressions of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. Ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, artistic design, work in fine metals, cutting stones, carving wood, and to work in every craft. Verse 6 even makes it more general. It says that God had given to all of these men ability. In other words, the gifts and the abilities that are given in all of these areas are things that are the expressions of God's divine enablement. That means for you and for me that every ability that you have, some of you, you're brilliant. I mean, I've talked to some of you. I mean, you're like super smart. I just want you to know that's God-given gift. That's not you, right? I know it's not you, right? I know it's not you, right? You, you, some of you are talented musically, and you can just you can hear music in your brain, in your head. You can sit down and work out a melody. That is a gift from God. Others of you are able to craft words and language. Others of you are able to use your hands, and you can paint a picture, and it's unbelievably accurate. 
I mean, if I did that, you'd go, this is modern art, isn't it? So, I mean, you would be like, what is that? That's a, that's, that's my, a self-portrait. It looks like a triangle. You know, it's just like, what is that? You, you have unbelievable talent and abilities. Others of you, you're able to use your hands. You have skill sets that God has, has given you in your ability to express the ways in which God has worked in your life. All of those things are gifts from Him. And every single one of us have them. And the point is this is that God enables and empowers these people for that labor. He provided skillful people. He empowered their skills. He called them. He filled them. He empowered them with intelligence, with ability, with craftsmanship. Verses 7 to 11 then list all of the accoutrements of the tabernacle. List all of the things that, that are to be kept inside that tabernacle, including three things that we haven't covered yet. Let me just highlight them quickly. Chapter 30 deals with these. He lists the altar of incense, which was a altar just outside of the Holy of Holies in the holy place, which was uh, a place where incense was burned. There's also a bronze basin that was to be constructed, that was to be in the tabernacle courtyard, and that was for the ceremonial washing of the priests. And then there's also instructions regarding anointing oil and incense, specifically regarding how that oil, how that incense was to be made, and, and then how it was to be restricted. In fact, if you read chapter 30, you'll find that this anointing oil and this incense is not to be used for, like, cologne. <laughs> like, don't be smelling like God's tabernacle. God has his own cologne, is basically what it is. It's like like Shekinah glory cologne, and only God was allowed to use that. And if you think about it, and it makes sense, that God doesn't want what is holy treated as if it's common. So everything in the tabernacle that would ultimately be used by God in the collection of his people for the purpose of worshiping himself, every bit of it would be divinely designed, but every bit of it would be constructed by people with God-given abilities. So the design was not only prescribed by God, but there were people that God specifically called. People who God would empower. People who God would give talents and abilities. And out of their craftsmanship, out of their fine work, out of their cutting stones, out of, out of their carving of wood, they would use all of their skills in order to create this tabernacle. And here's my question. Is that how you think about your talents and abilities? Is that how you think about intelligence and craftsmanship? Do you see a difference in your head between physical skill and what happens maybe on this platform in terms of preaching or teaching or music or leading in worship? Yeah, it's remarkable to me that one of the earliest examples of the Holy Spirit filling somebody in the Old Testament was an artisan. An artist, a craftsman, a worker, somebody who had skills. Before God ever filled the tabernacle with his presence, he called and filled gifted people to make a place for him to dwell. It's beautiful. And so I want you thinking today about what are the skills and the gifts that God has given you. Those aren't by accident. Those are by divine design. God has placed within you particular passions. When you run and feel his pleasure, that's a gift from God. So the question is, what is in that blank for you? When I do blank, how do you feel his pleasure? And for you to be able to think, that is the calling of God upon your life. This was a revolutionary idea or concept called vocation in the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther discovered the beauty of grace 
in the Bible, or rather rediscovered it, it was always there, but brought it back to the forefront, essentially that you can't earn your own salvation. It changed how people viewed their everyday work in the world. You see, medieval Catholicism created a wall between laity and clergy, between the secular and the sacred, between the mundane and the spiritual. And the reason was this, that if if your works create acceptance to God, and if the real work is found within the context of the church, then if you want to be right with God, the very best thing that you can do is to be a monk. To get away, to pull away, to serve the church and get away from culture and just simply spend your life in prayers and in reflection and in reading and in thinking about God. That is real work. And when your works make your righteousness, it's no wonder that people flock to the monastery. And when Luther comes on the scene and brings the gospel in and says, no, 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 that it's the just who live by faith. It's receiving a relationship with Christ. It's putting one's trust in Him that grace then comes freely. That then transformed not only the church, it transformed culture. Because suddenly now vocation and calling takes on a whole new meaning. That Luther sees that the way in which we do good is not going to a monastery. It's by serving neighbors. It's by pouring out love. It's by taking marriage and family and maximizing it. It's by... Realizing that God has placed us where he is in our vocations and our callings in order for us to be his arms, his feet. It is, Luther said, that we are, in that respect, the mask of God. He said this, God milks the cows through the vocation of milkmaids. In other words, the way in which God provides for his people is through the talents and abilities that he has embedded into human and uh, man-made, so to speak, culture. That the ways in which we express our talents and our abilities are the ways in which God actually cares for us. One author said this, that Luther understood that the Christian is genuinely bivocational. He is called first to the gospel, to faith in Jesus Christ, and he is called to occupy a particular station or place in life. The second sense of this calling embraces all that the Christian does in service to the neighbor, not only in a particular occupation, but also as a member of the church, a citizen, a spouse, a parent, or a child and worker. Here the Christian lives in love toward other human beings and is the instrument by which God does his work in the world. In other words, when you go out of this place and you enter every arena of culture in the city of Indianapolis, you are doing the work of God as much as I'm doing it here. It means that there is no difference in terms of the gifting or the calling or the sense of responsibility to be able to make much of the glory of God, whether it's preaching or singing or teaching or serving inside this building as opposed to being a God-honoring medical doctor, lawyer, a school teacher, whether it's serving in some nondescript sort of role in our community or whether it's serving in a high-profile position, the fact of the matter is, is that God uses our gifts and our vocations, our, our station in life in order to glorify and honor Himself. So all of you have been gifted. All of you have been called. And if you understand the beauty of God's grace, that means that you then get to use the outpouring of forgiveness and 
receiving the love of God that you didn't deserve and then to to disseminate that love into our community by serving those who need help and healing and by being gracious when mistreated and working with excellence in all that you do. And here we see in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God falls on a man who's going to use his skills in order to produce the very environments in which people will express their worship to God. The implications of this, I've been thinking about this all week, are just, to me, they are, they're, they're sweeping, they're stunning. Let me give you two. First, is understanding this, it infuses into mundane activities spiritual significance. In other words, there are no mundane activities. There's no insignificant gifts. There's no insignificant expressions of that gift. It means that whether you're single or married or a parent or how you labor or the context in which you are are engaged in our culture, all of these things, God has gifted you to be able to do that work. And those passions, those talents, those skills, those abilities were given to you. And therefore, we are to use them in order to celebrate the God who gave them to us. There are no mundane tasks. That can transform everything. So if you're in a dead-end job right now and you're like, I don't, I don't, what's the significance of what I'm doing? The reality is the glory of God can transform the mundane tasks that you have because there are no mundane tasks when you realize the way in which God has gifted you. It means that your ability to think something through or to reason it out, the ability to serve people, to be kind, the ability that you have to be able to take a, a, some, a, a language and create a computer program that does stuff for people like me who have no idea how you did that. To be able to know what's wrong with the human body and to figure out just by listening to somebody, oh, you've got a a torn tendon in your left quadrant of your shoulder. And I'm sure there's some sort of official medical name that I don't know, but I'm glad I got people who do know that. You're able to be able to take the, the beauty of what God has done in your gifting and express that in the world, that there are no mundane tasks. This is true for adults. It's true for children. Kids, listen to me. When your parents, when your mom says, I want you to go up and make your bed, you need to go up and make that bed for the glory of God. That bed ought to be crisp and clean, the pillow nicely aligned, the sheets all tucked in, so that when you walk away, your mom comes in that room, she sees the Shekinah glory of Christ coming on that bed. All right? There's a lot of female hands clapping with that one, all right? So let's make it masculine maybe a little bit. So when your dad says, hey, would you mow the grass? All right, here we go. Right? When you mow the grass and you get done and the lines are crisp and clean and it's all nicely trimmed and the green grass is all flowing, there's no... Sinful crabgrass. That's a lot of words that was in the back of my... No sinful crabgrass or fall-created dandelions or anything like that. The weeds are all gone. And you look at that, there is a... A skill set, a beauty to that moment in the midst of all the chaos. Here's something that's been beautifully and wonderfully done. There are no mundane activities. Think of moms who've chosen to give up your career and you're staying home with kids. And I imagine some of you in the back of your heads, you got... You, maybe you were doing something really big at one point in time. I mean, had people talking to you about what your career path was and now you're at home, you're picking up Cheerios for three-year-old kids. 
And sometimes you just want to tell them, do you know I have a master's degree? Do you know that? Right? <laughs> they don't care. They're like, when's lunch? Right? And you're like, ah! So, so where, where comes the value in that? It comes because there are no mundane activities. That everything can be done for the glory and honor of Christ because by His Spirit He gives empowerment for the skill sets that you have. Here's the second thing. And is that it, it changes the focal point of ministry and worship. In other words, here's the question. So where is real spirituality? Where does it exist? Does it exist here at 96th in town? Is this the real world? This isn't real. I mean, it's, it's real, right? But it's not real. You know what real is? Real is you by yourself going into your marketplace And you're dealing with people who are cursing and taking the Lord's name in vain. You're dealing with people who don't believe like you believe, who look at you and wonder, what in the world, what planet do you live on? Or you deal with people who claim to be Christian, but they don't really act like it. And so there's this constant tension between how they live and how you're trying to make good on the gospel. And you're trying to live in your neighborhood and to to be the right kind of person and give the right kind of example and, and also be able to share Christ. And you're doing all these things in the culture and you do that six days a week and you're weary and you're worn out and then you come back to this place for grace and for a reminder of forgiveness to receive the lord's table and to be reminded that you to be a living sacrifice and then you go back out into the world and you do it all again you do it for six days and then you come back and are healed and renewed the point is this that while there's lots of ministry, good ministry, that takes place in the context of the local church or here at 96th in town, you need to know that what you do out in the world, that also is very, very, very real ministry. It changes the focal point of worship. It changes the focal point of ministry. Therefore, if when you run... You feel God's pleasure. If when you blank, you fill in the blank, you feel God's pleasure, then listen to me. You ought to do it with every ounce of excellence. You ought to study hard and work hard. Students, listen to me. You're going to go back to school in a few weeks. We need really smart Christians in our world today. We need really intelligent people who are well-read, who understand how to engage the culture, who are well-spoken, and who know who know how to speak gooder than everybody else. Um, you... You'd be like, what's so funny about that? That's the point. You need to know why that's so funny, right? Why that's not right. You need to be the kind of person who's well honed in your skill set so that you can make much of the glory of Christ that you ought to work. We don't need lazy, subpar Christians trying to find their place in the world. We need people who make much of the glory of Christ for our honor. No, but because you've been spirit filled in that gifting, God hasn't given you gifts to have them wasted or set on the sidelines. So the question I want you to answer is this. Fill in this blank. When I blank, I feel his pleasure. What is that for you? And whatever that is, it's a gift. Use it for the glory of God. That is the pleasure of work. Now the second thing in the text, I just said all this about work, and now I'm going to talk about rest. It takes faith to rest. And it's remarkable that after talking about this, all this work, I mean, his spirit empowered two men plus all the others around them, and then the text ends talking about Sabbath rest. Verse 12 begins, and the Lord said, probably this is 
a, a, a motif of the creation process where in Genesis chapter 1, text says, and God said, and then the world was created. And here again, we have this kind of creation motif. And notice that the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, Verse 13 is the most important verse of this entire section. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That is a huge verse. I mean, it's unbelievable all that he says in that little verse. Notice three things about that text. First, there are more than one There's more than one Sabbath. He says, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. What's he talking about, Sabbaths? Well, rest is built into the very framework of our human existence, isn't it? I mean, you can't work forever. Every 18 hours or so, you you need to rest. In fact, it just, it's just remarkable to me, and I have to imagine what the angels think when they look down at human beings. I've talked about this before, but just to think that here are these human beings who, for eight hours in their daily life, they lay on their backs with their mouths open, drool coming out of their mouth, and the angels might look at us and just go, look at these ugly, ridiculous creatures, and then we wake, shower, and conquer the world, and then go back to bed. I mean, it's crazy. And you know why that's part of God's design? Because if we worked without rest, if rest wasn't in the equation, we would soon believe that we are God. So it's a part of the physical structure. It's a part of the commanded order that we're commanded to rest one day per week. The principle is that there needs to be a a Sabbath sort of experience in your life on a regular basis. But you know what? Not only that, you know that fields were to be rested every seven years? So if you had six fields, one of those, th- those fields had to be rested every seventh year. So let's say they're on a rotation. You've got one field every seven years. And although, and if you're a farmer and if your livelihood depends upon what comes out of that ground, just think of it. That field is going to sit dormant for an entire year. It could have grown something, but you're choosing not to grow something from it. I mean, that takes faith to make something rest when it could be doing something for you. And then when there were seven sets of seven years, after 49 years, there was a 50th year called the year of Jubilee where everything was reset, corporate rest, where debts were wiped away, land was returned. There was a, a reset, if you will, of all of life. So God says that they're there to keep his Sabbaths. Verse 13 also says, For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. The second thing here is that Sabbath connects people to their creator. This is really important. In fact, remember when I read it a few moments ago? There's a penalty. If you don't keep the Sabbath, God puts you to death. In other words, you're going to rest or I'm going to kill you. (laughs) So why, why would God take that so seriously? The reason is that he says it's a sign between me and you. Sabbath was a statement. It's a statement. It's a reminder that God brought his people out of bondage. Sabbath is a statement that you're no longer a slave and I am the one who brought you out. Slaves don't rest. 
They can't rest. They're always slaves. They're always at someone else's beck and call. Or beck and call. Tim Keller says the following about this idea of slavery and rest. Anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave. Even a self-imposed one. Your own heart, our materialistic culture, or an exploitive organization, or all of the above, will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore a declaration of of our freedom. It means you are not a slave, not to your culture's expectations, your family's hopes, your medical school demands, not even to your own insecurities. It's important that you learn to speak this truth to yourself with a note of triumph, otherwise you will feel guilty for taking time off or you will be unable to truly unplug. Listen, I see this all the time. And I feel it personally. And I I just want you to think through with me what it says about our relationship with God when we are working, 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 striving, 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 it isn't a matter of you have a great worth ethic. At the end of the day, what it really is about is you want to be your own God. What Sabbath does is it reminds us that we are not the center of the universe. I've tried ever since um, leading a team, whether this church or my previous one, that one of the hallmarks is this, that if you want to get in trouble with me, you get in trouble by not taking all your vacation. The reason is, is it's a, it's a gift, but it's also a statement. And that is you need to unplug. Not only because you need to rest, but also because you need to learn that you're not that important. <laughs> Seriously. People come back from vacation and things are pretty much fine. Everyone needs to be reminded of that, right? It's a reminder that, that life doesn't revolve around you. That... You can unplug and other people can step up and a sign of health is that you can walk away and realize that your identity is not found in what you do. It's important in every area of life. It's especially important in ministry. Ministry is way too prone to taking one's identity from the role that you fulfill. And so Sabbath is a reminder that my life, my life isn't defined At the end of the day, it's not defined by being a pastor. It's defined by being God's kind of person, God's kind of partner, God's kind of parent, and then God's kind of pastor. Third, Sabbath reinforces God's sanctifying power. Look back at verse 13 again. He says that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Sabbath reminds us that without God's power and without his provision, life absolutely falls apart. Sabbath reminds us that human beings are totally dependent and what can happen is that our work over time can convince us that we're actually autonomous, that we don't, we don't need God. I'm, I'm okay sort of without him. This is the whole lesson that God wanted people to learn when it came to, to manna and it being provided every day. Remember that? We looked at that a few months ago. So manna shows up every morning. The people go out, they gather it, and, and, and they consume it for that day. They couldn't store any over. If they stored any of it, it got wormy by the next morning, except on the day before the Sabbath. They'd go out, there was twice as much. They'd, they'd gather it all up. They'd store it and miraculously it didn't spoil 
when it was kept over the night into the Sabbath day. And on Sabbath, there was no manna provided. And the whole point of manna was this, is that God is the one who provides daily bread for you. And believing that he's going to provide for you is a regular thing that you need to embrace in terms of your trust in him. To practice Sabbath means that you are regularly being reminded that you are not the center of the universe And that your work, while good and right and excellent, your work, though, is not what really keeps you afloat financially. Your work is not what actually allows you to provide for your family. Your work is not what makes you add value to the company or keeps you in good favor with your boss. Sabbath is a statement that you cannot get good grades or find the right mate, or make your house a haven, or raise godly kids, or maintain your health, or have enough money in retirement on your own. Sure, there's a bunch of stuff that you need to do in life, but at at the end of the day, you don't have an ability to keep your life together. And that's what Sabbath says. Sabbath says, my life is not about work of any kind. And I don't just mean work for a living. I mean work in terms of raising kids. I mean work in terms of yard. It works in terms of your house. That at the end of the day, life needs to be about a relationship with my creator. And Sabbath is a reminder of that. If you don't get this, your life is going to be filled with anxiety because you'll try and always be tying up the loose ends in life and you won't ever be able to do it because there's always going to be more loose ends than you have time for. And so you'll be always filled with worry. You go to bed thinking about all the issues that you have, and you wake up in the morning, there'll be issues there. And one of the best things in the world you can do is go to bed in faith, believing God's going to give you grace the next morning, and you choose not to worry about it. Some of you are so filled with anxiety because you don't rest. Others of you are filled with anger because if you can't get control of something by virtue of what you do, and you don't have unlimited energy then what you do is you get angry to try and bend the circumstances by your emotions to get people and situations to do what you want them to do. There's others of you that express the challenge of this issue by being stingy. You hoard your money, your stuff, because you like what your stuff says about you or the security that it brings. You're not inclined to to loan out something because you're worried it's going to get broken. Or you don't give because you see money. It's just, it's just going away. How can I just give this away? It takes faith. It takes rest. So this idea of Sabbath rest, this, this intentional stopping of normal activities is a great antidote to self-made, self-protective people. It is what convinced Eric Little that not running was more valuable than winning. In other words, he valued what Sabbath said more than what a gold medal said. Some of you need to really think about that statement. He valued what Sabbath said more than what blank said. Some of you are here today and you are running and running and running and running and running because you're trying to fill a gap in your soul. And what I want you to understand is Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The real problem in your life is not that you need a vacation. 
It's not that you need more sleep. And you may need a vacation and you may need more sleep, but that is not the ultimate problem. The, the, you may think, I just need a different job. The problem is you could take your vacation, you could get enough sleep, you'd go to a different job, and the problem is just going to chase you all the way there because the issue is not the job, not the vacation. It's not time. It's not rest. At the end of the day, there's no peace. That's the problem. There is no ability to practice Sabbath unless you first found what it means to find spiritual rest in Christ. And as I, as I prayed about today and thought about this, my, my heart just aches for men and women who are just running on this, this perpetual treadmill of performance, just trying to get after it and get after it and get after it, and whether it was uh, another job or the next level of income or maybe it's a relationship to a relationship. You're running and running and running and running, and you're so tired and you're so weary today, and I just want to call you to stop. To, to shut it down and to realize that it's not about the relationships or the money or the career. It's really not about that. It actually is about you and your desire to worship yourself. And you won't ever be fulfilled until you're broken over that. And you say, I can't do this anymore. I need to run to Christ because he is the only one who can truly give me rest in my soul. Friends, this is what the Bible calls it. It calls it the gospel. And the gospel brings rest, and it also brings real good works. Let me explain what I mean by that. Israel, they were a nation of former slaves, and that that changed the optics on which they saw everything. God rescued them, and it marked them forever. And their story is the story of redemption where God grabs them and and calls them to be his own. And as a result, they could rest because they were no longer slaves. And all of this is a setup for the major story of the Bible, which is that Jesus comes to rescue sinners. He comes and dies on a cross in order so that those who put their faith in him, God can take the death of Jesus and apply it to those who have put their faith in him. And when that transaction between Jesus' death and our life happens... The Bible says that a rest comes within the soul that you can't even understand. It means that you are once and for all declared to be righteous. That God declares over you absolutely, fully, and eternally forgiven. That there's not one thing you could ever do to make God love you more because He loves you as much as you could possibly ever imagine. But He did it all in Christ. Such that your identity, your wholeness, your purpose in life is not all wrapped up in the beautiful thing of what it means for you to have a relationship with Jesus. The result of that is that when you do any good, you do it not because you have to, but because you want to. And this changes everything. It changes it in marriage. If I came home with flowers today and said to my wife, here, honey, here's some flowers. And she said, oh, that's great. Why, why did you do that? I mean, she would love it if I said, oh, honey, no reason. I just, I just love you so much. And I just really just wanted to do that. She'd be like, oh, you know, that'd be awesome, right? It's not a bad idea, right? I'll go do that. But if I came home and brought that flowers and she said, why did you do that? And I said, well, I have to. I mean, give me a break. I mean... That's what guys got to do, you know, to survive. I mean, it's, you know, whatever. It's what you do. I mean, she's going to be like, you know, she's going to be like, take your flowers, pal. She's not going to want those flowers. Why? Because the motivation and the want and the yearning and the freedom, it makes all the difference in the world. If I have to, 
It changes everything. 1.5 billion people during the month of Ramadan are fasting from sunrise to sunset because they have to. The bondage, the fear, the continual trying to measure up, that doesn't bring joy. It brings sadness and oppression. The beautiful thing that the gospel does is now when you're able to serve somebody out of the overflow of grace and someone says, why would you serve me like this? And the answer is, man, you don't know how much I've been served by Christ. I can't help but love you after how I've been loved. I can't help but forgive you the way that I've been forgiven. I can't help but pour out my life in service for you for the way that Jesus has served me. Is I consider you more important than myself because that's what Jesus did for me. That changes good works. It changes how you view what you do, why you go into the marketplace and how you use your gifts. It helps you to see that the gifts that you've been given are divinely enabled, empowering things in your life. God gave them to you as a gift, not as something for you to use for self-glory. You see how the gospel changes things? But it also, the gospel radically changes rest. Because suddenly now you can actually really rest that your life is not defined by what you do. Which is awesome if you're in a job that you're not so excited about or you're like, yeah, I just do this. And, or maybe you're unemployed. I mean, you know what that does to somebody when they're unemployed for a long season and someone says, what do you do for a living? And they're like, I'm between things. It's awful. And you know why? Because so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we do, positively and negatively. Here comes the gospel. The gospel that shows us that our true value in life comes by resting in Christ. It means that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. So we are free not just to work hard, but we are free to rest happy. To be able to say my identity and my value doesn't come from what I do. It comes from my relationship with my Creator. In this way, Sabbath is deeply rooted in the Gospel. Again, Keller quote, All of us are haunted by the work under our work that need to prove and save ourselves to gain a sense of worth and identity but if we can experience gospel rest in our hearts if we can be free from the need to earn our salvation through our work we will have a deep reservoir of refreshment that continually rejuvenates us restores our perspective and renews our passion it's no wonder god commanded rest it's no wonder he took sabbath so seriously Because seriously, if you don't take the Sabbath principle seriously, it's as though you're saying to God, my identity really doesn't come from you, and I don't really need you. What I'm about is the stuff that I do and taking care of me, and that is the essence of rebellion from your Creator. And so Sabbath is a regular reminder that I need you. Oh, how I need you every hour. I need you. In Exodus 31, we see the beautiful tension between spirit-empowered work and divinely commanded rest. Eric Little said, When I run, I feel His pleasure, but I won't run on Sunday. So God has made both rest and work, and both are meant to point to Him. So work hard for the glory of God and then rest well for the glory of God. Lord Jesus, 
pray that you would help us today in our understanding of these truths. Thank you for men and women who are uniquely gifted by you. And those gifts have been given by the Spirit of God to be able to make much of your glory. And I pray that our church would be filled with people who just see their area of gifting as vital for the advancement of your kingdom. But Lord, today on my heart more than anything is men and women who are running and running and running and so frustrated and alone and weary because their ultimate rest is not really found in Jesus. And I pray that today they might give up and give in and say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. And that finding that ultimate rest, not in what we do, but into whom we are fixed to Christ, that in that relationship, would sp- from that relationship would spring good works and true Sabbath rest. And, and finally, Lord, from brothers and sisters who know you, Lord, that we would be guarded from getting too much of our identity from what we do. Help us to rest and to rest in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Afterwards, there will be some folks up here who would love to begin that rest experience with you. If you just need someone to pray over you, they're here today to serve you for that, okay? So don't leave without being prayed for, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you so much. Thanks for coming. Take care.